You are listening to National Security Law Today. A war rages between Ukraine and Russia. China, Russia, India, and Brazil are attempting to forge a new world order to counter Western institutions like NATO, the G7, the European Union, and the United Nations. Beneath all of that, it's an effort to counter the United States. The specter of cyber threats to the critical infrastructure of the United States and its allies is rising steeply, and the menace of autonomous weapons increases daily. Against this backdrop, members of Congress are seriously considering whether they should reauthorize an important intelligence-collecting tool that was designed to keep Americans safe from these very harms. And if they don't act before December 31st, this important tool could be lost. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet, and my guest today is the Deputy Assistant to the President of the United States and the Deputy Homeland Security Advisor to President Biden, Josh Geltzer. Josh, good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thanks so much for the invitation. My pleasure. So, you know, not everybody listening to this podcast is going to know the greater refinements of 702. And I think in fairness to intelligent listeners everywhere, it might be helpful for you to start with what 702 is and what it is not. Absolutely. In a nutshell, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, allows the executive branch in a court-supervised way to obtain communications targeting only non-U.S. persons located abroad, enlisting the assistance of U.S. communications service providers. Now, let me just unpack that as well. There are non-U.S. persons located abroad who use U.S. technologies for the same reasons we all use them, because they are reliable, because they are cheap, because they are effective and fun to use. And those who would do harm using our own technologies against us can be important targets for intelligence collection. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the types of intelligence that can be obtained through their communications. But what 702 allows is for the executive branch, under the supervision of the FISA court, to go to these companies to get those non-U.S. persons located abroad's communications in order to protect national security and advance foreign policy. Okay, seems pretty basic, doesn't seem to have too much to do with people in the United States, frankly has nothing to do. But let's talk for a minute about why 702 is important. When we already have an executive order, 12333, that authorizes collection of foreign intelligence information, what does 702 bring to the table that's not already there? It's such an important question. So just as you say, you might think about executive order 12333 as one side of a spectrum. It's non-U.S. persons located abroad whose intelligence, whose communications are of intelligence value to us. And then think of the other side of the spectrum. So this is what's covered by what's called traditional Pfizer, Title I of Pfizer, which tends to be people on U.S. soil whose communications are of intelligence value. Now, 702 is a bit in the middle of those, though much closer to 12333. It is non-U.S. persons, and they are located abroad. That makes it just like the targets of 12333 collection. But there's one quirk. The quirk is that they are using U.S. communications technologies in order to communicate. Now, in a sense, this is giving them a bit of 
extra protection in our system. They don't have any Fourth Amendment rights. That's the clear case law regarding non-U.S. persons located abroad. But they are touching the wires that are U.S. in a sense. They are using U.S. companies in order to communicate. And so Congress, to keep up with the technological evolution that led to this, essentially crafted a, a compromise. Instead of 1233, where there's no statutory framework for it, but also instead of traditional FISA Title I, where the executive branch goes to the FISA court for every particular target of collection because they're on U.S. soil. Under 702, the executive branch goes once a year to the FISA court. It tells the court what topics it would like to collect on. The court approves those. And then the executive branch is able to work with tech companies in figuring out the appropriate particular targets of collection within those topics. Okay, so there's no risk that somebody, say, in Michigan is going to be targeted because it has to be two things, correct? It has to be a person who's located overseas who is not a U.S. person. That's exactly right. And indeed, the the statute, 702 itself, includes an explicit prohibition on so-called reverse targeting, where you target someone abroad with the real intent of collecting on a U.S. person or someone in the U.S. Now, at the same time, I should say, just like was anticipated when this statute was created, some of the targets of collection do turn out to be talking to U.S. persons. Again, this was expected. Indeed, this was some of the most concerning type of communication that 702 was designed to enable collection of. Think about it. It was originally a predominantly counterterrorism tool. And when it was passed post 9-11, there was particular concern about those non-U.S. persons located abroad who might be trying to recruit, radicalize, help plot terrorist attacks in the United States. And so it is true that collecting on non-U.S. persons located abroad can sometimes reveal some very important communications between them and U.S. persons, not only of the counterterrorism variety, but recruiting spies, attempting hacks, all of this can be revealed through 702 collection. Right. And in reality, we live in a global economy. I mean, there is a lot of international travel. There is a lot of trade that takes place over internets and networks. And we also live in a time of war and climate change where immigration flows seem to be faster than at almost any other time in history. So yes, I mean, if a U.S. person is talking to a target of foreign intelligence, in other words, a foreigner located somewhere else, how do we prevent or limit that from happening? In other words, what are the mitigation tools that we can use to avoid all of this? And should we prevent that if these U.S. persons communicating may be involved in plotting against the United States. And I'm not just talking about terrorism here, but, you know, to steal trade secrets, you know, which could torpedo an entire company somewhere. Shouldn't it be okay to do this, Josh? I think this is critical to the ongoing conversation about 702's reauthorization. And so I'm glad we're spending time on it. It is our view from experience that being able to sort and sift information lawfully obtained under 702 around U.S. persons where that's reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence value is among the most important 
aspects of 702 collection. Again, let, let me give you an example. Imagine if we have in other intelligence indications that there's been, let's say, a hack of a major company. But we want to try to figure out and quickly who's been hacked. We might be able to use 702 collection to indicate that the hack has been of a German company, a Dutch company, or a U.S. company, so that we could alert that company, help them mitigate, help trace who the hacker was. It would seem a very bizarre state of affairs if we could sort and sift lawfully collected 702 information around identifying if it was a German victim company or a Dutch victim company, but not a U.S. victim company, which is, after all, what the U.S. taxpayer pays the intelligence community to do, protect ultimately U.S. persons, U.S. national security interests. So it is both critical that there be an ability to sort and sift lawfully collected information in this way and critical that there be guardrails. And those exist. And indeed, we have worked very hard to strengthen those over the past few years. That has included some sensitive U.S. person queries conducted by the FBI being approved at higher levels, some even at the deputy director level. And it has involved creating an opt-in requirement so that if 702 collected information is to be searched by an FBI agent or analyst using U.S. person information, that they need to explain why that meets the relevant standards and deliberately choose to do so. Okay, and you said something important. You know, when you think of the IC or the intelligence community, I mean, we're talking about this sort of AMF, probably, you know, the best in the world. But among the agencies that are in the IC or the NSA, the CIA, obviously the National Counterterrorism Center and the FBI, are all of those agencies places where people can query this database if they had a question about a U.S. person who is, by U.S. person, we obviously, we would include corporations, but who may have been somehow hacked or communicated with by a foreign entity who is otherwise a legitimate and important target of 702. Can all of these people working there sort of have at this database or are there some guardrail? There are a lot of guardrails. It's a critical question. So as your question rightly indicates, there are four parts of our government that have access to so-called raw 702 information, the actual take. And those are the National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the FBI. Now, even what they have access to within 702 collection is limited. For example, the FBI only gets less than 4% of the information collected under 702, only information associated with a predicated investigation. The theory is that FBI really needs information where it relates to their investigations to fulfill its essential mission of protecting the homeland, but it doesn't need access to things that are just general foreign intelligence insights and information, where instead it's more appropriate for NSA or CIA to have it and be able to incorporate it into analysis. Now, I should emphasize, beyond those four agencies, a number of us benefit from 702 in the form of finished intelligence. But those are the four parts of our government that have access to the raw 702 tank. As I say, even that is further limited. And for example, at FBI, where U.S. person queries have become a central part of the discussion about reauthorization, there is now a training regimen in place that those who can engage in access to 702 information need to have proper training, recertified training, and if they make certain errors, they will lose the ability to continue to have access to that information. 
Okay. And let's, you said something that's kind of a buzzword. And I want to key in on that because I think not every listener is going to understand when you use a phrase like a predicated investigation. I mean, we should probably talk about that for one second, which is just to be clear under the Privacy Act and and the DIOG, which is the, what is it? Director's Investigative and Operations Guidance. You can't have a predicated investigation based solely on First Amendment protected activity. So we're not talking about somebody expressing opinions. A predicated investigation has to be something that involves serious criminal conduct or suspicion of serious criminal conduct. Is that right? You are right that the FBI is not allowed to predicate to open an investigation based purely on First Amendment protected activities. And there are other constraints set out in the Diog and elsewhere. When the FBI is receiving 702 information related to predicated investigations, all those thresholds need to be met for those investigations to be, again, predicated or opened in the first place. And then the idea is they should have access to lawfully obtained information that can help illuminate and expand on their body of knowledge related to those investigations. And it's just worth emphasizing that that lesson, that takeaway, was a central one, perhaps even the central one from the 9-11 Commission report, from the Webster Commission report that came out of Fort Hood. The critical takeaway from those studies in the wake of, of two tragedies was that we can't, as a government, afford to blind ourselves, to erect walls to separate already lawfully obtained, lawfully collected information. In fact, those two commissions said the opposite. Tear down walls and find ways to ensure that you are putting together the pieces that allow terrorist attacks to be stopped and spies not to be recruited in the homeland and critical infrastructure not to be uh, penetrated by hostile foreign actors. As we, as an executive branch right now, resist strongly the suggestions some have made that we should, for example, have to go to the FISA court every time we want to search or sift within lawfully collected 702 information using an identifier associated with a U.S. person, we think it's our responsibility to do the opposite and indeed to utilize that information swiftly and capably and nimbly for the purpose it was collected, which is to protect national security. You also just talked about the fact that there's, you said earlier, there's specialized training. There's obviously an audit trail of any query, correct? That, that's right. And we're talking about information related only to predicated investigations. And all of these things are reviewed, I think, almost every, what, 90 days or whatever within the FBI to make sure that there's still predication, that it's still meritorious to keep open. But we're not talking about a situation where anyone could just query because they're having a bad day or they don't like the person's name or something like that. It sounds like there really is a lot to prevent sort of any abuse of this. But let's turn for just a second, because Recently, President Biden assembled an advisory board to examine 702 authorities, and that advisory board put together a substantive report, which we will hyperlink in the notes to this podcast for people who want a deeper dive. But why don't you talk about, for just a moment, what the board concluded through its examination of this authority? It's a really important report, and I would commend it to, to your listeners. And the PIAB, the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, which has existed since the Eisenhower administration to provide nonpartisan advice to the president on intelligence matters, and which currently has a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs on it, a former Secretary of Homeland Security, former Chief of Staff to the CIA Director. The PIAB came back with an extensive report on 702 that had, I would say, three central conclusions. 
One, that were Congress to allow this authority to sunset, to lapse at the end of this year, it would be likely the greatest intelligence failure of a generation, and it would be self-inflicted. The second conclusion was that being able to conduct these queries that we've been talking about, those whose identifiers are associated with U.S. persons, is absolutely essential to the vision for this authority in the first place, in which we were able to understand when non-U.S. persons located abroad are presenting threats to the homeland, including by trying to interact with those in the homeland whom they wish to see become terrorist actors or spies or infiltrators of critical infrastructure. And the third point that the board made, which I think is an important one, is that we have worked hard to improve compliance and we need to continue to do so. And I mentioned before some of the updates that we've made over the past few years and how FBI in particular conducts these U.S. person queries that have become a, a focal point for debate. And those reforms of 2021, there have been more since, led to a drop by 93% of the number of U.S. person queries conducted by the FBI and an increase in the compliance rate of the queries that are conducted. All of this, to my mind, shows that this reauthorization cycle presents an opportunity, presents an opportunity to keep in place a statutory authority that is absolutely essential to understanding Chinese origins of fentanyl, of Russian atrocities in Ukraine, of weapons of mass destruction components before they reach foreign actors, and to entrench in statute some of the progress we've already made as a matter of policy in expanding and improving the guardrails and compliance within that. But the alternative, and the board is very clear about this, is that for this reauthorization cycle to lead to a lapse or a sunset of this law is really to go blind at a moment when our country cannot afford to do so. It's interesting we're having this conversation when it was less than six years ago that the Hill was asking questions and expressing concern about the concept of going dark. And yet we find ourselves at this point. Do you think, though, that this sort of simple and clear message about the importance of 702 intelligence collection has really made its way into the minds of the American public? Do you think that they understand this to be a clear sort of nonpartisan concern or is there still work to be done in that sort of messaging space? I think it is incumbent on us to keep doing what we've been trying to do for months, but know that we need to continue to do it, which is making this case, explaining why this authority is of such extraordinary value, especially at this time. And part of that has been working with the intelligence community to declassify very concrete examples that illustrate the value of, of this authority. So we've been able to say publicly that Section 702 has identified threats to U.S. troops. We've de declassified that 702 has disrupted planned terrorist attacks at home and abroad and has contributed to the successful operation that took Ayman al-Zawahiri, the global head of al-Qaeda, off the battlefield last summer. We have declassified that 702 has resulted in the disruption of hostile foreign actors' attempts to recruit spies in the United States and to send their operatives into the United States. We've declassified that 702 has identified key economic security risks, including strategic malign investment by foreign actors. I could go on, but I think what this speaks to is our very conscious effort to make this case to the U.S. Congress and to the public in a way that helps them understand the work of the intelligence community, the responsible ways in which the community utilizes its authority, but also how devastating it would be with all the challenges the United States faces in the world at the current time to somehow lose this authority wholesale 
or to see it reauthorized in a form where it's so diminished that we, in effect, lose these types of insights. Part and parcel of any discussion of intelligence collection, though, is the fact that the general power and scope of the IC, it is not always functioned with the Constitution forefront. And we've learned this in a couple of instances, right? You might remember there were the Pike and the Church Commissions of the late 1970s that resulted in things like the FISA statute and the Classified Information Procedures Act and the discussion of the gray mailing that was preventing so many cases from being brought at that time. When people look at the sort of size, the power, and frankly, the efficacy of the U.S. intelligence community, and they feel a little nervous about any authority that is expansive, what in terms of messaging and sort of facts can be done to address these sort of broader concerns about the scope of government and authority in general as embodied as they may imagine it in something like 702? It's a terrific question and an important issue to all of us who work in this area, who, who see people working hard to administer these sorts of complex programs and who want the public to be reassured in, in the way that they're they're handled. And, and I'll go right to, to the fact that there have been compliance errors associated with 702 in the past. It's a complex system, but that's uh, no excuse. Compliance errors are unacceptable. And we say that explicitly and publicly, and we should. Now, the second thing to say is we've worked hard to figure out better ways to administer this program. And again, I've sat in the Hoover building where FBI is based, and I've seen the overhaul to their systems that they have put in place in the past few years that prevents the sort of inadvertent searches of 702 collected information that were a large, large part of compliance errors of the past by now requiring opt-in and indeed opt-in with explanation, whereas in the past there was an opt-out requirement. That's why this reauthorization cycle strikes me as such an important opportunity. It is not just a chance to ensure continuity and collection on the most important global issues of the day, issues that should matter to all Americans, whether that's Russian atrocities in Ukraine or how the supply chain of fentanyl works before ultimately leading to this deadly drug being in American communities. It is that, but it is also a chance to entrench in law so that it's far, far harder to roll back some of the guardrails and improvements we have already instituted as a matter of policy to prevent the sort of compliance errors that have cropped up in the past. Whatever angle you come at these issues from, whether focused on the security benefits of 702 collection or whether focused on some of that skepticism and a desire to see guardrails and constraints, I think both sides can win this reauthorization cycle. Let's look back. I have read and I read almost every two or three years, I reread Sun Tzu's Art of War I try to look back at some of the wisdom of the Stoics, but I want to take sort of a broad historical look where all empires fall at some point. But in all of history, can you think of any time when a country facing the magnitude of external threats that we face today voluntarily gave up a source of important intelligence that was used to protect its citizens and its national security? I, I can't say I could point to an example, and it really leads to that that very, very striking line from the the, the board we, we mentioned before, the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, which points out that there can be intelligence failures over time, but for this this authority to expire and expire right now would be the self-inflicted variety, the type that we really can't afford to have in a moment when the world is is, I think, hungry for U.S. leadership 
and in which this authority allows us insights into the sort of things where we're rallying the world to the defense of Ukraine, its sovereignty, by allowing us insight into the atrocities that Russia is is inflicting there. And, you know, I'll give you one statistic that I think speaks to the breadth of 702 collection, which is the fact that 59 percent of articles in the president's daily brief, the PDB, in calendar year 2022, contained Section 702 information reported by the National Security Agency. 59%. So if you imagine what the president is reading every day as he tries to grapple with these hard decisions on behalf of the American people, and then from about two-thirds of those, eliminating some piece of the information, sustaining and forming that analysis, that feels like the exact opposite direction we want to go in as we grapple with complex and important choices facing the president, facing senior policymakers, and facing the American people, ultimately. Okay, well, I'm sure there's some lesson to be gleaned from the fall of Rome. So I'm going to go research that and I'll come back to you. But let me ask you this. I know we're on track right now. It's up for reauthorization. What is the status of the reauthorization on the Hill? And what source would you recommend listeners use to track the progress of 702 renewal? So we have been extensively engaged with members and their staff on the Hill for many months now, as we have done what we think is our responsibility, which is help educate and inform about both what this program is and isn't and what value it yields. And it's worth pointing out that as we approach the looming sunset of this in December, 60% of the U.S. House of Representatives has never before voted on 702 and a quarter of the Senate has never before voted on it. That's just the extent of turnover in both parts of the U.S. Congress over the past five years. And that, to our minds, has only raised the importance of us doing what we've worked very hard to do, which is educate and inform in whatever setting members and staff wanted about this critical authority and how it's administered. We have been very gratified at the level of engagement we've received from members, from their staffs. We have, of course, spent a lot of time in direct conversation with them about different changes that could or could not be made to the authority and providing our candid feedback on those that we think would be doable, those that we think would be beneficial, and those that we think would be quite detrimental. And we look forward to ramping up that engagement in the months to come. I think for listeners who want to follow this, it's worth looking at a page that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence has created, where we have worked hard as an executive branch to provide at least in unclassified form, some of the very same resources we are providing to members of Congress on the Hill. There's a two-page fact sheet there that summarizes in very pithy form the vignettes we've declassified showing the utility of this authority. There's also a much longer document there that talks about the civil rights and civil liberties protections built into 702, the way it functions, and uh, that provides a greater length some illustrations of the value of this authority. And I'm sure following those sorts of resources will help provide insight into what we anticipate being a very lively continued conversation with the Hill in the months to come. In addition, I would say if you're not familiar with any of the ways to track these things in Congress, there are occasional summaries on GovTrack, which is one source. And then, of course, you can always use Congress, Congress congress.gov, I think it is. And they have an app. If you're really, if you have to have an app for everything, they've got that. This has been a very good conversation. And I really appreciate sort of hearing all the refinements on sort of the mitigation of any problems with 702. And I am going to come back to you at some point, Josh, because I do want to know if you can identify any moment in history 
when a great power gave up an intelligence collection tool? Because I couldn't find one. If I discover it, you're going to be the first to know. I promise you that. All right. Well, that's good, because I think when we talk about critical infrastructure being threatened from cyber threats and the value of 702, I'm not sure the average person knows what we mean by critical infrastructure, but it means things like the banking system, our utility systems, the grid, the things that we need for our very survival. So obviously, this is an important authority. Would you like to say anything else to our listeners before we let you go tonight? I am very grateful for the chance to talk uh, with you, Elisa, about this critical authority and really urge those who, who care about foreign policy and national security issues across the spectrum, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's cyber, whether it's critical infrastructure, whether it's terrorism, whether it's strategic malign investment, to look at some of the resources we've made available that illustrate just how important 702 collection is to protecting American national security and just how devastating it would be for the authority to sunset at the end of the year. A pleasure to have you. We'll notify our listeners on social media and keep track of the progress of this important issue over the coming months. So we encourage you to check out our website. Thank you for listening tonight. We invite you to subscribe, like, and rate us on your listening app of choice. Share this episode with a friend and have an intelligent conversation about 702, one in which you consider the opinions of other people who are not inside your own information silo and strive to share your opinions in constructive and civil ways recognizing that America's national security depends on our ability to find a lingua franca or a common language in a time of social media echo chambers. You can find us on Twitter or X, ugh, God, as we have to call it now, as well as other platforms under the handle at ABA NatSec. Have thoughts you want to share with us? You can reach us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. You remember email, the old-fashioned way. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.